For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. The politics of the World Cup, the world's biggest sports event underway now in Russia. For that, we turn to Bob Edelman. He teaches the history of sport and Russian history at the University of California, San Diego. He's a former sports writer and radio announcer. He's consulted on documentaries for HBO, PBS, ESPN, and CBS at the 1998 Winter Olympic Games. His most recent book is The Oxford Handbook of Sports History, an edited volume with 34 chapters that's almost 600 pages long. And he's currently leading a multi-year international research project on the global history of sport during the Cold War. He's just returned from Moscow. Bob Edelman, welcome to the program. Great to be here. Well, first of all, why is the World Cup in Russia? How did they get it at the moment when Russia is banned from the Olympics? Well, the process by which what are called mega events of the Olympics and the World Cup is that the, um, the the games are or the whatever the event is awarded seven years ahead of time? So they they're seen as like aircraft carriers. So what happens at the inception doesn't mean the situation you're going to get when the actual games are taking place. So I'll give you an example. In 1931, Berlin is awarded the Olympic Games. So this is two years before Hitler comes to power. So. By the time they get to 1936, things have changed and yes. for the worst. And there was a huge debate about whether you know there should be a boycott or not. So this process is kind of built into the, the very structure of the process. So we think of Putin as an authoritarian supported by oligarchs. How successful has he been in the last couple of weeks using the World Cup to expand his own power and standing? I think it's kind of an open question. I mean, it doesn't feel like a, a fascist state when you're actually walking the streets there. And I tried not to watch a ton of TV because that may be a place where that kind of power is expressed. But, you know, I think this is a general situation that, that, that goes back to what they were doing in 2014 with the Winter Games. It's a part of a general soft power campaign. Uh, it's cost them a lot of money. I think this will probably be less successful on the field of play than the Olympics were, but you know it's possible that the players themselves will be cleaner. I can't guarantee that. <laughs> so you know, it's it's a kind of an open question, and uh, a lot of these things, more the World Cup than the Olympic Games, tend to have a, a built-in situation of unpredictability. So somebody once said, a friend of mine once wrote that. Uh, soccer football is a slippery tool in the hands of dictators. Mm. So it's not clear how this is going to all play out. And what was it like for you to be in Moscow when the Russians won their first match five to nothing over Saudi Arabia? Well, I'll tell you. So first thing that happens is I, I get into a talking with my taxi driver about two or three days before the game. And I'm convinced that this is going to be nil-nil, right? Because opening games are always kind of unimaginative and people are nervous. So I said to the taxi driver, I think it's going to be no, no. The taxi driver says to me, 
oh no, it's going to be five nothing Russia. <laughs> and I thought this guy was an idiot. <laughs> what did he know that you didn't? Uh, I'm trying to find him. I'm trying to track him down and, and determine what that might be, you know. But it it does suggest uh, that perhaps there was something that was preordained. I have no proof of this. Well, you know, when we we think of Russia and sports, the first thing we think of is hockey. Then maybe we think of gymnastics at the Olympics. How big is soccer in Russia these days? How big was it in the Soviet Union? Soccer was always the most popular sport in, Ru- in the Russian Empire just before the revolution, throughout all of Soviet history. The fact that it was the most popular sport didn't mean that it kind of worked in the way that the state would like it to work, meaning that it was something that could have potentially inculcated obedience. You know, This was supposedly a planned economy and uh, a relatively controlled society. I think we now have learned that that was not really the case. And so if you look at Soviet football in particular, it's not something that the state really succeeded in controlling pretty well. There was corruption. There were all kinds of unpredictable results. There were riots. Uh, you know, players could behave badly. Uh, they were not always role models. So... It's a hugely popular sport. It's always been, but it's also its lack of success on the international level, especially, is more emblematic of the lack of success of the Soviet Union in general as a kind of modernization project, if you want to call it that. Moving out from Russia to Europe, I wonder what you think of the argument made recently by Gary Young, the nation columnist and Guardian writer who worried that the World Cup would mobilize Europe's resurgent right-wing populist nationalism or or at least provide an arena for expressing it? Well, you know, especially in an age of globalization, it's possible that national soccer teams are the last vestige of the nation state. At least that's what we thought maybe five years ago. And uh, it will all depend to a certain extent upon results. But some of the worst uh, places actually for uh, the expression of this kind of right-wing populism, let's say Turkey, let's say Hungary, like even Russia, are not at the moment really uh, considered to be possible successes uh, in the World Cup. So I think it's, again, that old slippery tool. And uh, I don't think it's going to – I mean, I think the piece that Gary wrote uh, was excellent, and it's certainly a smart thing to raise, but I do think it's, as uh, Stuart Hall would have said, contested terrain. (laughs) Excellent. Well, Gary Young also points out the ways that national soccer teams are one of the few places where, especially for uh, the European teams, minorities are likely to be overrepresented. And so issues of racial and national identity often feature heavily in talk about the sport, especially in Europe, when a team wins its diversity is taken as a sign of the nation's genius in uh, allowing and nurturing diversity. When a team loses, diversity can be seen as a reason for its failure. I wonder if you think that that's true. Well, it played out perfectly in 1998 when this very diverse team of France won, uh, much to the shock and surprise of the French. Uh, and uh, that diversity was embraced and we all look back to that as a wonderful moment in history. Four years later, they stank up the joint. And, uh, you know, uh, whatever, uh, Le Pen, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen was, uh, you know, claiming that this was the result of too many black players. 
So both of these scenarios can play out, and obviously based upon uh, results. I think it's also you know indicative of the fact that citizenship in modern you know whatever post Cold War Europe became extremely malleable. So, I mean, for instance, apparently, if your grandmother drank uh, a glass of Jameson, you could represent Ireland. <laughs> Uh, it's almost that flexible. I mean, you know, and you see that sort of strangeness. Uh, I don't think it's the case this year, but there have been times when people from Africa have represented Poland. Well, uh, on the diversity front, Mexico beat Germany. How big was that? Immense. And what was surprising to me completely uh, was that the arena, the stadium, was almost overwhelmingly Mexican. And... Uh, First of all, there's a living, breathing, highly successful Mexican, you know, middle class and upper class that are the kind of people that can attend these matches. So, you know, the idea that there's a sort of third world country which can't really participate fully in the World Cup has already been, you know, revealed as a myth just by the fact that this many Mexicans showed up. And again, uh, if you want to talk about unpredictability, this is a perfect case. A lot of people love Iceland this year. Why is that? What do you think, John? Well, they're <laughs> they're the littlest country. What's the total population of Iceland? 300,000 or something like that? And yet they're in the yep. World Cup and their players do not get $60 million for uh professional teams, the coaches a dentist or something. Uh have I got have I got this right? Well, I wouldn't say that the players are not quite good. I mean, there's a lot of them that are dotted over the best leagues of, of Europe, especially even you know the Premier League in England. So they have made a commitment to find as many uh, young people, young men in this case, uh, and then train them from an early age and then, you know, using their sort of first world cyber digital talents, you know, mobilize a very high level of sports science in support of this. No one has suggested drugs at any point, you know, because we like Iceland too much and it's a perfect story. Uh, so I'm not going to go there, but it is a perfect case of using rational methods to bring to the fore something that, you know, if you do are able to control it and, you know, obviously most of these players are middle class, let's say. So there's that, that kind of issue that, uh, you know, they're able to you know, be taught and, uh, express this but it's a, you know it's a great story and especially you know if you're all uh, sort of remember the how they put England to the sword in uh, the European Championship 2 years ago it, the story is not new and there's this wonderful moment i don't know if you've ever seen it where they're making this full length counterattack against England and the Icelandic announcer, you don't need to know any word of Icelandic, right? But he starts sort of getting a little excited, and then he, you know, gets gets higher and higher, and, and the pitch of his voice gets higher and higher. And finally, they score this goal, and the the poor guy just explodes. <laughs> <laughs> the World Cup is the biggest media event uh, in the universe. The TV audience is much bigger than the Super Bowl or the Olympics. Uh, let's talk a little more about what you called mega events. Well, a mega event is something that goes on for a while, either two weeks in the case of the Olympics, roughly, and a month in the case of uh, the World Cup. It's one that uh, uses media 
to uh, disseminate the event throughout the world. What's also interesting more in the World Cup than in the Olympics is that uh, everybody kind of knows what's going to happen in terms of the rules, in terms of you know what particular game is played in the Olympic Games. There are all these events that you know on a normal day people don't care about. I mean, one of the things I've always uh, enjoyed about the World Cup is that they don't really have much of an opening ceremony, and that that's because they don't need this elaborate you know event to convince people that they should watch for the next two weeks. You know, they just they don't want an ceremony. They just want to get on and watch the play. Yeah. Uh, you know, the other thing which has to be mentioned uh, and uh, is that this is a largely male event, although the Women's World Cup is really growing in stature and obviously was very big in the United States just this most recent time. You know, it's, it's a festival of masculinity, even though one sees a lot more women in the stands at a World Cup than you would, uh, I don't know if it's true in Olympics, but they're been an average say, league game on a Saturday in you know some European or Latin American country. Our uh, producer, Alan Minsky, is involved with a project called The People's Game about the, the World Cup. They're calling for a, a global strike or at least a, a global work uh, stoppage uh, vacation to coincide with the World Cup. I, I wonder if you support that. Well, unfortunately, I am supporting it by spending time away from my work, <laughs> <laughs> which, as you know, as is always writing and uh, and watching much too much TV. I mean, I actually did watch Sweden uh, play against South Korea yesterday, and uh, you know, I, <laughs> I I may have to ex- expend or extend my therapy in order to figure it all out. <laughs> Bob Edelman, our sports historian, just back from the World Cup Games in Moscow. Thank you, Bob. It's always a pleasure, Jim. You've been listening to Start Making Sense, the weekly podcast of The Nation magazine. You can hear more interviews like this one at thenation.com, and you can subscribe to Start Making Sense at iTunes Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you. With professional-grade industrial supplies, count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure.